welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, brought to you by the Community Orchard Network. In this monthly radio show and podcast, I'm going to take you on a journey. We'll learn about fruit trees, permaculture, food forests, and so much more. So if you're a gardener and enjoy growing your own food, if you love trees and especially fruit trees, or if you're just interested in living a more sustainable life, you've come to the right place. I'm Susan Poisner, your host for today. So get ready, roll up your sleeves, and let's dig into today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show today. You know, when you're growing fruit trees, harvest time is the most exciting time of the year. There is nothing like organic fruit picked fresh from the tree. But what could be more disappointing than harvesting the fruit only to discover that someone else got there first? Now, I'm not talking about human bandits. I'm talking about insect pests, those little bugs and moths that nibble on our tree's leaves and fruit and lay eggs under the skin. Now, fresh organic fruit just doesn't taste quite as good when there's a worm or a maggot hidden inside. Now, in the Ben Nobleman Park Community Orchard in Toronto, our approach is to use orchard socks. Orchard socks are nylon sockets that we slip onto the baby fruit and just when the fruit is no larger than a nickel. As the fruit grows, the sock expands, all the while protecting that little fruitlet from insect infestation. Now, that approach works if you have maybe 10 fruit trees, or one fruit tree, or 20 fruit trees. But if you have a 1,000 trees, tying on orchard socks will be quite time-consuming. So you may consider investigating other non-chemical approaches. Today, we'll talk about some of those approaches with my first guest, Dr. Gary Judd, an entomologist who has spent a lot of time studying the sex lives of insect pests and learning how to use this information to protect our fruit trees. Then later in the show, is there a wrong way to water a fruit tree? The answer, believe it or not, is yes. In the second half of the program today, I'll talk to Chuck Engels, a fruit tree expert from Sacramento, California, about the do's and don'ts of fruit tree watering. And I think we'll all be pretty surprised at how little we know about this seemingly simple fruit tree care task. But first, the secret sex lives of of fruit tree insect pests. Now on the line, I have Dr. Gary Judd an entomologist from British Columbia's Summerland Research and Development Centre. Dr. Judd, welcome to the show. Yes, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. (laughs) It's a pleasure. Can you tell me a little bit about your work? What is it that you do? Well, as you introduced me, I am an entomologist, and my specialty is in chemical ecology. And specifically in that, I examine the mating cycles of insects and the chemical communication signals that they use to find each other, um, and those signals that come from plants that attract insects. So chemical ecology is what I am. Hmm. Well, let's start from the beginning. Pests, what kind of damage can they do to our fruit trees? Well, in tree fruits, we, we normally classify pests into two types, generally, direct pests and indirect pests. Now, an example of a direct pest would be coddling moth, and direct because the caterpillar feeds its way into the center of the apple and destroys it. 
or in southern Ontario, Toronto area, you might have a pest like apple maggot, and the maggot crawls its way to the center. And then we have pests that are indirect. These could be things like leaf rollers that feed on the leaves and surface of the fruit. So the oblique banded leaf roller would be an example of an indirect pest. Hmm. So, okay, so we've got these kinds of pests and they are ruining the harvest. Um, So what exactly was the typical, maybe a more, can I say, old-fashioned approach uh, to preventing pest damage on fruit trees? Well, ever since since introduction, Reduced apples uh, came to Canada in 100 years ago in the Okanagan. Um, we've been controlling insects primarily with some sort of toxic spray and some spray that would either kill the eggs or the young caterpillars before they entered or fed on the fruit. And that's the classical way that we've controlled insects for 100 years. And, and what's the downside of that? I mean, if it works, it works. Well, it works. Yes, it works, but um, those toxins have indirect effects on a lot of other organisms in the orchard environment. They cause a number of secondary problems by, by killing beneficial insects that help us control those indirect pests. And generally, they, um, they're just not good to consume in large quantities. You have grower and worker exposure to these toxic materials as they apply them. So, um, in, you know, environmental consciousness has is, is, is given us a reason to believe these chemicals are just better off not having them in the environment so we can find alternatives. That's that's our aim. So, okay, a, a different approach of actually looking at the mating habits of these pests. What's the history of that? Um, you know, when did people start to consider, well, maybe there's a different way to do this? Well, the, the first pheromones, uh, the sex pheromones for insects were discovered um, in, in about 1970 in the case of the codling moth. And so, um, we've been considering uh, this use of these, these chemical signals, these sex pheromones, for at least uh, a better part of 40 to 50 years now. Hmm. Okay, and what, what were they trying to do at that time in those early well, years? Originally, the, the, first, um, the first sex pheromones that were identified, these, um, let's take, for example, the codling moth. They're shown to attract the male codling moth in very large numbers and, and very small amounts of these chemicals. I mean... Uh, a hundredth or thousandth of a gram is all you need. And they attract lots of males, and so we put them in traps, and our intention was to try and trap the males. And we thought naively that we might be able to control the insect populations by removing the male insects. So male removal was sort of, or mass trapping of males was our our target of using these pheromones. Well, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? If the males are dead, then the females have nobody to mate with, and your fruit trees are protected. Yes, that, that was the, the supposition and that was the hypothesis we were trying to test. But as we stood, studied the insects and we realized that a male insect might mate with several females, um, it takes uh, very few males to mate with a large number of females to cause damage to your crop. So mm-hmm. it's very difficult to control 100% of the males and remove them before they mate with a female. So that approach was somewhat naive and, and really hasn't been uh, that effective. Hmm. So uh, what happened next? I mean, I know that if anybody has, uh, you know, gone to a U-Pick orchard and wandered around, you do see these pheromone traps. Are they the yellow sticky paper? Is that what the pheromone, or what do the pheromone traps look like? Well, entomologists have employed lots of different traps. Some of them are are based on chemicals like sex pheromones, these, these signals. And others might be based on color. So you might have a yellow trap that attracts certain flies like apple maggot or cherry fruit fly. So entomologists have tried a variety of different traps. But let's specifically talk about the sex pheromone traps. Now, the the original, um, one of the most uh, consistent uses of them, and you still see it and it's still used to a large extent, is to tell the grower uh, that the insect is active in his orchard, when they're there, what numbers, and where they might be. If you, have, if you could well imagine, if you had a 100-acre orchard, the insects are not necessarily everywhere, so the traps could tell you what part of the orchard they were in mm-hmm. and when they were most abundant. And so that knowledge of the seasonal life cycle, the ups and downs of the population, gives growers a, a good idea of when they might spray their insecticides. So if they had to use insecticides, they could use much less, and it would be properly timed and properly targeted. Hmm. So, in fact, if they only have the pests in one part of the orchard, they may not need to spray the other part of the orchard. That's exactly right. And that those are the kinds of techniques we call, they're generally called integrated pest management uh, techniques, and they became very popular 
um, after Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, and into the early 70s, we started to develop these IPM techniques, and they still uh, are being developed and refined consistently. And is there evidence that they work? Well, there's, there's, there's very good evidence that they work. We have minimized the use of pesticides and, and, and allowed uh, greater protection of crops with, with far less uh, insecticides than we were using 25, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, but um, we as entomologists want to keep pushing the, the boundaries, and so we've tried to use um, non-chemical approaches to remove all chemicals from the orchard. And, mm. and we've been uh, somewhat successful with that in, in, in British Columbia in particular. So tell me a little bit about where, where you went from there. You weren't happy with just this idea of putting out the pheromone traps and uh, in order to discover where the pests are and then spray them. Uh, where did you take it from there? What, what year was this? Yeah, the, um, well, my career started in tree fruits uh, in, in 1989 here at Summerland after moving from southern Ontario. Um, and it, that was the time um, we, we were starting to investigate the possibility that we could use these sex pheromones not to trap the males, but to simply confuse the males. Okay, and so I'll, I'll give you a little descriptor. Um, we can synthesize the natural pheromone in the laboratory. Hmm. That, that synthetic pheromone then can be put in a small device that can be hung in the tree, and it can release sex pheromone over the course of an entire season. Hmm. And if you have one of those, it works quite well to attract the insects to that one lure. But if you put uh, 100 of these or, or several hundred of these lures throughout the orchard, what it does is it creates a fog, uh, is the best way to try and describe it to, to the uh, average person, is we create this fog of pheromone throughout the orchard canopy that then confuses the male moths so they don't know where to search for the female. So the, the natural signal becomes camouflaged, if you like, and the synthetic signal is very prominent. They respond to that, and that, that camouflaging effect or confusion effect is something we collectively call mating disruption. I have this image of the male insects flying around back and forth looking, you know, going towards, I guess it's the the smell or is it a smell yep. based thing? They're going towards the smell and it's like, hey, where are the girls? I <laughs> can't find any girls around here. And then they fly somewhere else. So is that it? They're just flying back and forth, wasting their time. That's precisely how the mechanism starts. And, and again, in, in our early days, we thought that they would just fly themselves to exhaustion. But you're right, we create this synthetic female. It is a chemical signal. It's a signal they detect with their noses, which is really their antenna on their head. Hmm. And they smell the signal, and then they, they follow it to its source. But as you can well imagine, after doing that several times during a single night, the, the male becomes fatigued. And hmm. he does eventually become what, what we in sensory physiology call habituation. So he becomes habituated to the signal, and so he no longer smells the signal not even the natural signal. Oh. And at that point, he would become sedentary and stop flying and, and, and simply sit on the leaves or branches of a tree and become inactive. So he just gives up? He simply gives up. Huh. <laughs> he, he will then probably start the next night again. The process will start again. But um, we also know that if the female doesn't mate within the first 48 to 72 hours of, of her emergence, her ability to lay eggs is actually decreases. So even if he eventually finds a female, if it takes him two or three days, and she's been waiting two or three days, she is going to lay far fewer eggs than she would normally, and so there'd be far fewer caterpillars. So we get this dual-pronged approach of reducing mating and then actually reducing egg laying in those that might actually escape our system. Okay, so while the guy pests are flying around getting confused, where are the females? Like, have you managed to, I don't know, put them somewhere all by themselves? Yeah, yeah. well, we have done many studies. Um, to We've released insects and studied where they are. We've, we've gone into orchards and collected insects, so we, we have... We understand uh, where the, the female actually resides when she is when she is naturally emitting her pheromone, something we call uh, the term calling behavior. When she's calling the male with her pheromone, most insects, especially codling moth, will climb to the tops of the trees or fly to the tops of the trees and sit there and wait. But she won't chase the male. She sits and waits and she calls and leaves her signal and she won't go in search of him if she doesn't mate. She just she's persistent in calling um, and so. The males and females don't find each other. It's not like she goes in search of them. Hmm. Uh, just um, what what does the pheromone lure look like? I, again, I have an image of you know how in public washrooms yeah. they have these things that automatically exude a smell so that it doesn't smell bad in there. Is that what it yeah. is? Well, as you can well imagine, entomologists are, are quite innovative, and and this area 
there's there's every there's there's one different lure for every entomologist. It's it's kind of like everybody wants to create a new mouse trap. So, mm. for example, that the average lure that releases pheromone in a trap that you might see hanging in an orchard is uh, usually just a little rubber piece of rubber, a little what we call a rubber septum that they use to close bottles off. And, and so it's a piece of rubber that you, you put the pheromone in. But it could be a plastic device that might be several inches long and a hollow tube sealed at each end. So the lures can be all sorts of types. Much science has gone into developing these and finding, making them inexpensive, making them robust, making them protect the pheromone because many of these pheromones are sensitive to ultraviolet light and, and so we have to protect them. So there's lots of different lures and uh, that you might see. Okay, so is each pheromone designed for a different type of insect or is there a well, general the, all-encompassing pheromone for all of them? Yeah, that's the beauty of the pheromones. That was our original um, thinking and that's, that's why they work so well is they are very often species-specific. Okay, so for example, codling moth uses a particular chemical for its its pheromone that we have since found there's no other insect that uses anything like that, and it's just a one what we call a one component sex pheromone. Now that won't that pheromone will not be detected or smelled or used by any other insects or beneficial insects, so it's it's only affects codling moth. Hmm. But as the science of pheromones evolved and as we learned more, we learned that there were some insects let's say, uh, like the oblique banded leaf roller or oriental fruit moth. Now, they use something we call multi-component pheromones. So they might have two pheromones, two chemicals that make up the complete pheromone signal. And it turns out that some insects might share in common one of those components, but not both of the components. So what makes it specific is when two are together. So we have learned that we can control, in some cases, several insects with one component of their multi-component pheromone. Hmm. Well, how did the tests look out there in BC? What kind of results have you got? Uh, what are the side effects, if there are any? I'm going to have to apologize, Susan. My, my cell phone's gone very quiet, so I didn't quite hear that last question. Um, my question is in where you guys are in British Columbia. So how is it all working, and uh, you know, how big a test have you done of this particular well, technique? Well, uh, in the Okanagan Valley, we have uh, tested several thousand acres of mating disruption uh, at, at different times. It, it has... Um, these kinds of technologies have led to the to the growth of the largest organic apple industry in Canada. Um, one of our valleys, called the Similkameen Valley, is they, they call themselves the organic capital of Canada. So it's it's been highly successful for the for the organic apple growers. Hmm. And side effects? Any negative side effects? Uh... Well, as you can well imagine, um, the negative side effects. Um, it's hard to call them negative, but they are. They have had effects is that when you stop spraying conventional insecticides, which are very broad spectrum, that protect your orchards against all kinds of pests, we have seen a growth over the last 25 years of invasive species that have, um, are having an impact on our organic systems, and, and our pheromones are not controlling those new pests. So we have, we have made ourselves vulnerable uh, by not spraying to these invasive incursions. And uh, they may have come anyways, but uh, the chemicals would have kept them under control. So now we're having to deal with a number of invasive species um, as, as a somewhat as an indirect fact, effect of using pheromones. Are you talking about species like Japanese beetles that that are, you know, well, affecting fruit trees? Well, certainly the Japanese beetle is an invasive species, uh, but not a, not a pest of, of apples in British Columbia. Um but we have a pest from Europe called the apple clearwing moth uh, that's become a pest. Um, the brown marmorated stink bug. And in British Columbia, we would consider apple maggot an invasive species and a pest. And we haven't yet discovered it here in the Okanagan. Oh, really? Wow. Amazing. Well, let's hope you don't get it. We do. So, we certainly yeah. have it here. <laughs> Um, so that's very interesting. Now, are these uh, pheromone lures available to home growers or community orchardists or people who grow f uh, fewer trees? You you can certainly buy pheromones and you can buy pheromone traps. But um, and so you could. There's a number of uh, outlets in in uh, in southern Ontario or in various parts of the U.S. that could. Oh, are you? Um, oh, yes. Yeah, there was just someone knocking on my <laughs> my car door here as I was talking uh, to you. Okay. <laughs> um, so yes, you, you you could buy these uh, these materials from a number of supply houses. 
Um, now, the traps, the pheromone traps work very well for the backyard gardener or the small or who might have 20 trees. But pheromones that we use for mating disruption, unfortunately, work best in very large acreages. We, we tend to think of the minimum acreage that mating disruption might work to control calling moth. We might think that there's something around two to three acres of apples is necessary for uh. mating disruption to be effective. Okay, interesting. Well, Dr. Jed, in just a moment, we're going to hear a few words from our sponsors. But after that, I want to talk to you about your other project, I think your newest project, and that is to breed sterile pests to release in orchards. Are you okay holding on the line for a few minutes? Uh, I am. Great. And to the listeners, please do send in your questions or comments for Dr. Judd. Anything about fruit tree pests and pest prevention, pheromones, all that good stuff. And I'll ask those questions to Dr. Judd for you. Just send an email to us now to instudio101 at gmail.com. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner, and we'll be back after this short break. I'm Susan Poisner, and in today's show, we're pulling back the curtains on the sex lives of fruit tree insect pests. You'll never look at an apple maggot or codling moth again without blushing. My guest today is Dr. Gary Judd, an entomologist from British Columbia's Summerland Research and Development Centre. So Dr. Judd, you're still on the line, right? Yes, I am. So we've been talking about the historic approaches of using the knowledge of insect pest mating habits as a way to stop pests from ruining our fruit crops. Now, so far, we've chatted about pheromone traps, we've chatted about other techniques, but I understand that you've developed an approach that involves breeding sterile insect pests and then bringing them into orchards. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, I I certainly can. Now, I want to be very honest. This, This technique was developed by an entomologist who has since retired from the Summerland Research Center, Dr. Jinx Proverbs. And um, he worked, his career spanned uh, somewhere between 1950 to 1985. And so it's a fairly old technique, but he was working on codling moth, which was the key pest of apples here in the Okanagan. And the understanding and belief was if you could remove codling moth from the orchards, then you really could grow organically. And, and that's pretty much the case today. So he, he was studying um, a technique called sterile insect technique. And in that technique, what you do is you sterilize the male moths with, um, uh, could be x-rays or chemical sterilant, and those sterile moths are then bred up in the laboratory and released into orchards. Those sterile males then mate with the wild female codling moth. And as it turns out, in codling moth, the female only mates once in her life. And if, if she mates with a sterile male, she's fully satisfied and will then begin to lay eggs and those eggs will not hatch. They will be, in fact, sterile, and you won't get any uh, caterpillars forming, and you won't get any damage in your fruit. Hmm, quite amazing. I'm just trying to imagine what this would look like. Like, where do you get all these male insects? What happens if there's, like, female insects in the bunch, and you, you put them in an X-ray machine or something? It's, it's Yes, just... yes. Well, Dr. Doctor Proverbs developed a technique for, for raising these, these insects in trays of diet, and those, um, the rearing system he designed is housed in a, in a several thousand foot uh, square foot facility in Asoyas, British Columbia. That's right on the border to the United States and the southern end of the Okanagan. So that, that was a several million dollar facility that really is, um, it, it, it produces uh, millions of moths per week in a closed facility. And it produces, as it turns out, it produces males and females on that diet. But the males and females are both uh, ira- what we call they're 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 exposed to to uh, irradiation, a, a gamma radiation, very similar to X-rays in a machine, and so both the males and females are sterilized. So in fact, when what you release into the orchard are sterile males and sterile females. Hmm. The sterile females just lay sterile eggs, and the sterile males go in search of of the wild females, and that causes them to lay sterile eggs. So, so the- that's how the technique works. So this is amazing. So this has been in existence for many years. Is it only now being brought into uh, orchards, or, or 
No, as I say, he, he, Dr. Proverb's uh, career spanned 1950 to the mid-1980s, and then another entomologist took over his program at, on his retirement. And it took um, from 1985 to about 1992 to get the program that we have fully functioning here in British Columbia in operation. It was a joint venture of regional governments, provincial governments, and federal governments to build the facility. And in 1994, they made the first releases of sterile codling moth. And ever since 1994, um, they have been controlling codling moth in the Okanagan Valley uh, uh, with the sterile insect technique. So ever since the beginning of my career when I was working on pheromones, the two programs were running parallel. Hmm. So do you need both programs now, or, or is one well, being phased out? Well, um, the sterile insect program, is it's a good question. Um, it's a very expensive program, um, and we, um, it is very specific to codling moth. And, and it's the only pest that it, we can currently control here in BC with it. Now, we have a number of other indirect pests. As I said to you earlier, we get a number of uh, secondary pests. And so my work uh, for the last 30 years has been in controlling those other pests with pheromones. Mm-hmm. Now, we know full well we can also control codling moth with pheromones. And so we can control codling moth and several other insects if we just use pheromones. But it's a very long-running um, program. It's very uh, successful. And it's done area-wide. Everybody, everybody must participate in it. It's legislated. And so you can well understand that even if we had an alternative technology like pheromones, um, it's a very difficult uh, step to take to, to reverse that program that's been so successful for our control of codling moth. Wow. So basically, it looks like the two are working hand in hand. You've got the sterile uh, insect program for codling moth, and then you've got the pheromones working for the other insects. That's correct. Do you need to spray anymore? Are these spray-free orchards? Well, most of our growers rarely spray, except, as I said, for these these invasive species. We Mm. we um, not all not all growers make use of the pheromones. So those that don't use pheromones, um, the pheromones are primarily used by organic growers. We still have conventional growers who who would have to spray for some of these secondary pests. And more recently, since 2006, we've had this invasive or uh, pest, the apple clearing moth. That is causing us some concern because our organic growers are now having to spray to control that insect. And, and <clears throat> unfortunately, we're, we're, we have a pheromone for it. We have identified the pheromone, and we've tried mating disruption. But we are dealing with a pest that's in very large numbers, uh, and we, we need to get populations down under uh, lower levels before pheromones are really going to be effective. Mm-hmm. Well, so what, what does the future look like? What is your goal for the future? Well, the, the goal is to uh, minimize pesticides wherever we can, to use um, these, this information on chemical ecology and mating systems to control as many insects as possible. The most exciting and it, it's, uh, part of my work right now is that we have only just in the last two years discovered a, a group of chemicals, natural chemicals, that attract the female insects uh, and many female insects. And so we, could, we, we do think if we can trap enough female insects, and hopefully I'm not being naive like my predecessors, but we believe if we can trap the female insects, then we could uh, control those populations without pesticides. So my work and that of others will continue on into the future after I'm retired. But uh, this whole area of chemical ecology and using natural chemicals, I think, is, is uh, going to be around for some time and, and only get more interesting. It is interesting. Is it happening anywhere else, or is this just a BC program? Am I going to see it here in Ontario? We've got listeners in all over yeah. the United States. The, the sterile insect program for codling moths in British Columbia is, is a unique program. It's the only one of its kind in the world. We, we have other sterile insect programs in the world, but m- mainly in the tropics, and they're used to control tropical fruit flies. There's one in Arizona that controls a pest of cotton, pink bollworm. But the codling moth program in BC is unique. It is um, being tested. The technique is being tested uh, by people in South Africa, in South America, and in New Zealand. And the way it's being tested is they are buying moths from our facility to release and uh, during their season, because being southern hemisphere countries, they grow in the opposite season to us. So when our facility is uh, down in the in the winter, we can produce moths and sell them south. Uh, and and there are so there are other countries and industries trying to use this technique for calling moths. Hmm. I'm very curious to see how it develops because I know that there are a lot of people out there that would love to know that the apples and and pears and all the fruit that they're buying doesn't have toxic chemicals on it. So it's a hopeful development. 
it, it very much is. But um, I will say that there's, there's a very large uh, industry outside of British Columbia, the Washington State industry, for example. Uh, almost 80% of its industry uses mating disruption to control codling moths. So there are other industries that are very progressive in southern Ontario. I know you have a group of pests that have not... Um, have not been able to be controlled with pheromones, something like apple maggot. And that does pose a problem to, to entomologists and growers. And so we're having to develop different techniques to control pests like that. Hmm, quite amazing. Well, Dr. Judd, it's been really great to talk to you, and I appreciate you coming on the show today. Well, well, thank you so much for having me. I was glad to be here. Oh, great. Okay, goodbye for now. Hopefully we'll talk again someday. Goodbye, Susan. Thanks. Well, if you missed the beginning of this interview, or if you would like to listen to it again, you can, of course, download the podcast. Just go to orchardpeople.com slash network. And while you're there, you can sign up for our iTunes podcast feed so that you can catch up on previous episodes and so that you don't miss future ones. But wait, don't go anywhere yet, because coming up after a word from our sponsors, we will explore fruit tree irrigation. Is it? Is there a right way? Is there a wrong way? Is this a hard thing to do? Apparently it is. And we're going to find out more from Sacramento-based fruit tree expert Chuck Ingalls. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner, and we'll be back after this short break. I'm Susan Poisner, and you're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, a program where we learn about fruit trees, food forests, permaculture, and lots more. Thanks for tuning in. In the first half of the show, we spoke to Dr. Gary Judd about understanding the sex lives of insect pests and how that can help us protect our trees from insect infestations. Now, we love it when you reach out and contact us. And we've got an email here from Chase, who says, Wow, what a show. Very interesting. Good luck with the continued research. So I wish uh, that Dr. Judd was still on the line so he can hear that encouraging comment. Now, protecting your fruit trees from insect infestation is really important. But one of the key ways that you can do this is to actually just care for your trees properly in the first place, especially when they're young and establishing themselves. Now, there are various tasks involved in fruit tree care, including annual pruning, fertility management, and more. But one of the key jobs is correct fruit tree irrigation. Now, why is that so important? Well, fruit trees can only take in nutrients from the soil in liquid form. So, a dehydrated fruit tree is actually a malnourished fruit tree. And when a fruit tree is malnourished, it is weaker and, of course, more vulnerable to pests and disease. So, I wanted to talk to Chuck Ingalls, an expert in palmology, viticulture, environmental horticulture, and more, from the UC Cooperative Extension in Sacramento, California. We're going to be talking in a minute. Now, if you have questions and anything related to fruit tree irrigation, do send your email to us now in studio101 at gmail.com. Now, I understand that Chuck is on the line. So, Chuck, are you there with me? Yes. Hi, good to be here. Good to have you. How's How's the weather over there in California this year? Is it as dry as it has been in years past? Uh, the summers are definitely typically dry, and right now we're going through a heat wave, as I think much of the country is. We're supposed to reach about 104, 105 today. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that doesn't sound very pleasant. And all week. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's, I've been complaining here in Toronto it's hot, too. But uh, <laughs> So if, if, if irrigation is important anywhere, it must be in California, where, where your Absolutely. heat is just so extreme. Um, Well, tell me a little bit, first about California. Why is proper irrigation essential in in your part of the world? Well, fruit trees won't grow in a desert 
without water, and we basically are in a desert in the Central Valley. Uh, and so irrigation is mandatory every year. In some parts of the country, it's not. But here, we definitely have to water, and water a correct amount to keep the trees healthy. Well, it's interesting because I know here in Ontario, there are some orchards, organic orchards, that don't even have irrigation systems. Yeah, and that can work where you don't have really hot conditions and maybe get some summer rainfall, which we don't. And the roots are deeper because they have to grow deeper because that's where the moisture is. So that builds their drought tolerance. Hmm. Um, yeah. And yet it can also lead to, tr- to trouble. This year we had such a dry spring. We have a, we're having a very dry summer. I don't know, what, what would that do to those fruit trees? These are beautiful orchards that haven't had, you know, hardly a drop of water in months. Well, we get that problem when we don't have enough winter rainfall. And so often... Uh, not often, but sometimes when that happens, growers and individuals need to water their trees late in the winter to start the soil, to start the season out with a full profile of moisture in the soil. Uh, so when you don't start the season enough, then you're going to, with enough moisture, then you're going to go through the summer with stress of some kind. And in your case, it may not kill the trees, but the trees will probably be stunted and they'll have smaller fruit. Hmm. Yeah, who knows if they even have fruit at all. I I looked at our trees in our orchard park, and we spend hours out there on the weekends just with hoses watering and watering because it's been such a dry year. And I just think, you know, whatever fruit is on those trees, if I was the fruit tree, I would drop it. Because that (laughs) fruit, you know, it, it takes up a lot of energy. So... Um, yeah, so I mean, is that the case? Does it drop the fruit as well when it's dry? Yeah, if there's not enough fruit, uh, enough moisture in the soil, then they may not set as well to start with. But yes, if they're, if they go through the season with insufficient water, then they will drop some of that fruit, no doubt. Hmm. So, so whether it's in California, what do the irrigation systems look like in orchards? What, what kind of irrigation do you guys do? Well, uh, originally, there used to be a lot of flooding, and there still is some. Uh, there was furrow irrigation, and more and more uh, orchards are then became sprinkler irrigated, and now drip irrigation and micro sprinklers are probably at least as prominent as sprinkler irrigation. What so, are the uh, what, mm-hmm. sorry the drip lines? Uh, you know, a single drip line going down the center, or usually one on either side. If there's micro sprinklers, it'd be a single line with a you know, micro sprinkler between each tree. What are the pros and cons of the different approaches? Um, the, the, the pros of using drip and micro sprinkler is that it uses less water, especially drip irrigation, as long as it's managed correctly. Uh, the con for drip irrigation is that you don't wet the entire soil surface. And that's true with micro-sprinklers, too, usually. But you wet a bigger area with micro-sprinklers than with drip irrigation. Hmm. But you can still do it. For instance, all of our grape growers here use those that use drip irrigation. It's right down the row. So the middles between the vines are not getting any water, which you can still do it. Uh, It's just uh, for fruit trees, we'd like to have a little wider coverage because the trees are bigger. Yeah, I'm just kind of imagining how in the ground, as the roots are spread out, they they kind of probably congregate those underground roots towards where that drip system is, and then everywhere else either the roots are dead or they're just not very active. Is that what I might see if I could go and look into the soil? That's exactly right. Uh, If you start the spring with a full profile of soil, uh, I'm sorry, of water in the soil, then the roots can continue to grow out into that below the, you know, well below the surface through the season because there will be some moisture as long as there's not a lot of weeds, which take a lot of that soil moisture away. Then they can continue to grow, but they will dry out eventually, and more and more of the water will be taken up from where the soil is moist, uh, from drip irrigation. Hmm. Interesting. So thinking in terms of home growers, people in their backyard, uh, so you say micro sprinklers. I mean, I know people who put a regular, you know, grass sprinkler or whatever on their tree and they just leave it for a few hours and 
water their tree that way. Is that a good way to water your tree or if you're a backyard orchardist? It certainly can work as long as you uh, water more when it's warm and water less when it's cooler. Uh, But nowadays, especially in California with the drought, we've had a four-year drought. And some people say we're not in a drought, but we still are and we, we almost always will be. Uh, we're going to need to pay really close attention to how much water we're using. In fact, in many water districts uh, in urban areas, people were given last year one or two days a week to water, hmm. which really isn't enough for some things, oh. <laughs> including lawns and fruit trees, too, if you have drip irrigation. Uh, so uh, uh, I forgot where I was leading with that, but uh, but it is important, really important to water Uh, enough and not water too much. Yeah, that's the other problem. That's the other problem that you get. You know, um, we have uh, little espalier, lovely little espalier fruit trees in our backyard, and there's the temptation to water them every day because, you know, we have the water. Why not? It's good for them, right? But could that be a problem as well? Right. Watering every day could work if you're under really uh, severe heat and you have drip irrigation, you may need to water every day because you have few points sources where that water is available for the trees and it dries out quickly. Uh, but generally, sprinkling uh, and watering every day otherwise is not a good idea because you want to let the roots go deeper. You want to let the soil not dry out but uh, become less saturated uh, so the air comes back into the soil because when you water uh, especially flood or floral irrigation or sprinklers, you drive a lot of that moisture out of the soil, especially under clay soil conditions. So you need to let it dry out a little. And the other thing is there are diseases that occur when the soil is wet all the time, especially in clay soil. So you want to not have the soil wet all the time or anaerobic. Oh, well, that's an interesting point. So if you water too much, you can be inadvertently encouraging disease. So we wouldn't want to do that. And we definitely have clay, heavy clay soil um, here in in Toronto, at least. So I have two questions here that just came in from Clifford. Now he says his first question, what is the best type of emitter to use for fruit trees and where can I get them? Now, let's see. He has another question. So take note of question number one. Does chlorination affect fruit trees? Um, we use city water at home from Clifford. So what what do you have to say? Okay, first on the drip emitters, uh, my preference, and I think a really good strategy, is to use inline drip tubing, which has the drip emitters built into the drip tubing. Uh, that way you just run it. Uh, in a circle around the tree or in rows alongside the tree uh, and you don't have to worry about an emitter getting uh, kicked off when you walk around uh, so it's it's just a, it looks like drip tubing but it has the emitters, emitters built into it and where uh, would problem, we, where would you be able uh, to get something get like that yeah uh, big box stores carry it um, and uh, irrigation supply stores have a better line of them usually, and, and they'll help. They usually work with commercial um, landscape people, but they'll work with homeowners too. Uh, so there are definitely places to buy it. Hardware stores too will often have it. Uh, the problem is, and we often recommend using wood chip mulch, so you never see the drip tubing, which can be a problem because you never know if it's clogged and not working. That's why micro sprinklers are often good uh, because you can turn it on and look down the row and see, oh, yeah, they're all working. Uh, unlike drip irrigation, you can't see if they're working at all. And what about that question about chlorination? We are indeed using city water to water these trees, and uh, I can sometimes even smell the chlorine in our tap water. How does that affect yeah, the fruit trees? It's fine. It doesn't hurt anything. Oh, good. Um, yeah, it, no problem at all. It's only when you try to use something that's uh, like... Uh, BT or some other organism that you're spraying for pest control, there's some of them that you need to have non-chlorinated water because it kills the organism Uh that you're spraying on the tree. That would not be helpful then. (laughs) No. You're trying to put something good on and it's dead by the time it gets on your tree. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. 
Well, okay, so we've talked about emitters and a little bit about frequency. There would be, it would be so good to know how much is enough. Like, is there a way to test, is my fruit tree getting enough water or too much water? Well, there certainly are several ways. Uh, one way is to dig in the soil and see how deep the water, the moisture in the soil is. And that's a really good strategy, but there's better ways than digging a hole. And one includes using a soil sampling tube to pull a core of soil out of the, you know, out. And you can look at it and see how dry it is on the top versus down below. How uh, how it, deep do you want it to be watering? Like, do you want it to, the soil to be damp two inches down, six inches down? Well, the majority of the fruit tree roots of almost all fruit trees in most conditions are down to about 18 inches to two feet. The majority mm-hmm. of tree roots are in the top two feet on large trees in the top three feet. So you may have a tap root initially when you plant the tree, but that tap root basically goes away and the roots move out laterally. So all your roots are moving out and even beyond the drip line or the edge of the canopy, they're going outward. So you want to water that deep, so you want to somehow check the soil that deep if possible. Hmm. And but if there's it's other ways. okay, yeah, yeah, there's other ways you can you can um, you, you can keep track of evapotranspiration, which is a, a, a mouthful, I understand. And evapotranspiration is a combination of evaporation of water from the soil and transpiration of water through the leaves of the tree. So there are sites, and I looked on, online to see if Toronto has sites uh, that list the daily evapotranspiration rates, uh, uh, but I couldn't find any. So I don't know <laughs> oh, well. if you have them available, but we certainly do in California. But basically, the warmer it is, the more water you're applying. The cooler it is, the less water you're applying. Hmm. Somebody's got to figure out an easy way to do this. I've got at home a, a little self-watering pot, and uh, it's for little seedlings that I'm growing for the garden. And you can see a red line on this sort of, it, it looks like a ther- thermometer in the in the soil, and it tells you, okay, uh, you need to add more water. Somebody needs to invent that for home growers because... You know, and also it's like the soil is moist today, so do you want to wait until it's dry, dry, dry until you water again? I don't know. Your thoughts on my meandering thoughts? Well, there are soil moisture testers, but they usually don't go very deep in the soil. Mm. Um, and, and, And there are various sensors. I use certain types of sensors that are a little complicated, but not that complicated. They go deep into the soil so you can uh, basically have eyes in the soil and see how dry the soil is without having to dig. Um, but those are a little complicated. And, and uh, the other thing is, if your trees are healthy and they're growing well, they set a lot of fruit and produce a lot of good fruit, you're probably doing something right. Uh, but if you, uh, a lot of times you'll have small fruit or you'll have, which could be related to several things, or you'll have stunted trees, uh, which could also be related to other things. Uh, but, uh, but tree health and production are a good indication that you might be doing something right. Mm, well, that's a good way to think about it. I so appreciate you coming on the show. I feel like we could continue talking for quite a while. And it's amazing because, again, you think irrigation, oh, isn't it basic? And it's kind of complicated. If I could just say one other thing. This is really common where people think you need to set the hose right by the trunk. That's where all the roots are. You don't want to water by the trunk unless it's a really young tree. The roots are moving outward. You've got to move that water out and keep the trunk dry uh, below ground. That's a really good point because, uh, of course, uh, you know, they say you really want the under the canopy of the tree, the, the farthest canopy. So it's actually quite far from the trunk. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, tr- roots are near the trunk too, but we want to keep the trunk dry to keep uh, to keep it from dying. Uh, some diseases love that moisture around the trunk, hmm. um, so keep that area dry. Uh, I have another. Clifford has sent us another email. He's obviously very interested in this topic. Now he says, and this is interesting actually. Is it is it best to water a fruit tree once during the day, or multiple times during the day? morning or evening 
Well, the multiple times would only be if there's a slope and you don't want it to run off. So you water a little, let it sit, water a little, let it sit. Uh, generally, you water all at once to get it down to the 18 inches, of course, unless you have the slope. But regarding his other question about emitters, if he's going to use punch-in emitters on the drip tubing, then use pressure-compensating emitters. Generally, one gallon per hour or thereabouts is best. Wow, fantastic. Oh, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. Hopefully you'll come back, and I know you, there's lots of things that you can talk about, so maybe we'll get you back another day. We'll talk about something else. Yep, okay. Okay, thank you, thank you so much. Goodbye. Bye. Okay, well, that was fast. That's all for the show today, and it was really nice to speak to my special guests. Chuck Ingalls, Pomology, Viticulture, Environmental Horticulture, and Master Gardener Advisor at the University of California Cooperative Extension. And earlier in the show, I spoke to Dr. Gary Judd, an entomologist from British Columbia's Summerland Research and Development Center. So if you missed part of the show and you want to listen again, just go to orchardpeople.com slash network where you can access this episode and all the other episodes that we've done about fruit trees, food forests, and permaculture gardens. And while you're on the site, do sign up for my monthly newsletter at orchardpeople.com. And I'll remind you about upcoming podcasts and you'll get access to lots of free content, including articles, interviews, ebooks, and all sorts of stuff. Tune into the show again next month and we will have more great guests. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care t- Training website, orchardpeople.com, and I look forward to seeing you next month. If you want to learn more about the Community Orchard Network, I've created a page on my website where you can find out lots more information and learn how to sign up for our newsletter. Just visit www.orchardpeople.com network. And you can read our frequently asked questions and check out the free webinars and podcasts that we've recorded. Tune in next month and you'll meet some more great guests and you'll learn more about fruit trees, permaculture, and forest gardens. Our show goes out on the last Tuesday of every month at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm Susan Poisner. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101.